I am Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, politicians, diplomats, business leaders, and writers. And we try to get to know the person and also to get to know about the stories behind what they do. Our guest today is Roberto Salinas Leon, president of the Mexico Business Forum and an investment advisor in Mexico. He's also been, I'm glad to say, 2018 Patrick O'Mara lecturer. Roberto, I would like to have our audience know a little bit more about you. And before you start, I want to also welcome to the campus Marta Vergara de Salinas and your son, Jose. And we've been delighted to have them. Your son, of course, is a classical pianist who is at the San Francisco Conservatory. Well, yes, thank you, Patrick, and thank you for this opportunity to share a little bit of insight and about this wonderful visit that Marta and Jose and I have had during our stay here at Bloomington and, and the campus of Indiana University. It's something that we hope we get to repeat soon in the future. Thank you. Tell me about your family. I think you grew up in Monterey. Actually, I did not grow up in Monterey myself, but my family... Your family is from Monterey. Is from Monterey, yes. And your family family were in business. Extended family continues to be in business, yes. And your parents and grandparents were people who were interested in ideas and books. And I think that was clear to me when we recently visited the Rare Book Library on the campus. Yes, that's very much so. But tell me, you then moved to Mexico City. Was that what the progress was? My grandfather, Hugo Salinas Rocha, uh, was sent by, by his father, Benjamin Salinas. At the turn of the 20th century, my grandfather was actually a graduate of Wharton Business School, married Nora Price of Salinas, de Salinas, my, my paternal grandmother. He was asked to move to Mexico City in order to close a furniture factory that was called Salinas y Rocha, as in the Rocha family and the Salinas family having established this factory. And what ended up happening is that instead of closing it, he revitalized it and ended up opening a whole host of stores that focused on basically retail sales for middle income and lower income uh, threshold. So I believe that he was one of the first persons that introduced a form of microcredit or credit to uh, lower income uh, uh, thresholds, making possible the ability to purchase a kitchen or a bed or, or a set of yeah. chairs or a refrigerator and whatnot. And that grew into a very, very successful business throughout yeah. the years. It a continues today. Roberto, you said the name was Price de Salinas. Yes. Price is not necessarily a Spanish surname. No, 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 no. My, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother was uh, from Bernathan, uh, just outside of Philadelphia. I thought so. I thought uh, when so, I heard uh, that. Yes, uh, she was American. Actually, three of my grandparents, two, my two maternal grandparents were also Americans. from the U.S. And so that afforded me the possibility of growing up in the Anglo-Saxon community, which is a very strong and very large, com- very influential community in, uh, in Mexico, in Mexico. Uh, particularly in Mexico City. They must have met when your grandfather was at Wharton. Uh, no, that's exactly when they met. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Your education as a young person, where did you go to school as a, uh, your first experiences with learning? In I Mexico, went to a school City? called the Peterson School, which yes. is a bilingual school in Mexico, established by Marvin and Lainey Peterson. And I'm actually a, 
a graduate of the very first generation of the Peterson School. It was only a primary school then. And after that, I went to Greengates, uh, which is a British yes. uh, school, uh, now rather well-known throughout all of Mexico and particularly Mexico City. This is where I graduated, eventually graduated. For a variety of reasons, I ended up uh, doing my university studies and later my graduate studies in the Midwest. Uh, at Hillsdale. Uh, first at Hillsdale, I yes. did a liberal arts degree there, a multidisciplinary degree. And then I did philosophy and political theory degree, also a, a, a wonderful academic experience at Purdue University. Yes. Somewhere along the way, you had an internship in Washington, I realized. Oh, yes, I did. With an interesting family. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Actually, I was an intern for, was very involved in monetary policy at the time and interested in, in the gold standard. There was a gold commission that was set up by the Reagan administration in Washington in 1981, which is when I did my internship. And it was in the office of Ron Paul when he was a freshman congressman. In other words, his first political experience, his first stint as a politician, and he was actually a gynecologist, a successful gynecologist outside of Houston. It was with him, and it was a wonderful uh, learning experience, um, not just because of what it involves being an intern in Washington, but because it was a very small office. So it wasn't just opening mail and doing all the, the usual handiwork. It was actually engaging in research and, and being able to listen to congressional testimony and to take notes at different Gold Commission meetings. And so it was uh, indeed a, a very important experience. What was your doctoral thesis about at Purdue? It was on theory of knowledge, but particularly theories about theories of knowledge, something that is that philosophers uh, have a pompous name for it called meta-epistemology. Oh, so yes, meta-epistemology. It was meta-epistemology and, and some thoughts on uh, naturalism. What some of contemporary philosophers have tried to do with uh, theory of knowledge is to naturalize it, and, yeah. and so... Uh, rely on, on biology and neuroscience and cognitive science in order to explain the knowledge process and not as a philosophical endeavor in the classical sense of Plato or Descartes or, yeah. or others. Uh, so I got, I got deeply immersed in the, into those things. It's a things. great topic. It's an interesting topic. But I noticed yes. you've also been interested in David Hume Yes. And in Adam Smith. Yes, very much so. So you... More, more David Hume than Adam Smith, but, uh, but Because both. of anti-mercantilism? Uh, oh, yes, very, very definitely. Now that the trade deficit is such an important topic of yeah. policy discussion, one of the probably, if not the best, certainly one of the very best explanations of the meaninglessness of a balance of trade comes from, from David, from David Hume, Hume, who very clearly explains that a, a trade is about A couple of hundred exchange. years ago. Uh, uh, over a couple hundred years ago, yes. certainly, that trade is about exchange. So you cannot measure the success of trade as if a trade balance is an income statement, but rather you have to measure it in terms of if you have reciprocity of what uh, what some scholars call reciprocity of market access. That's really the important item. And if we wanted to get rid of a negative trade, what is today called a negative trade balance or a trade deficit, simply throw all imports into the sea and that would very quickly yeah. it would impoverish you but it yeah. would quickly solve the trade balance problem so uh and he was trying to be ironic as david hume was what i love about david hume and adam smith is that they are multidisciplinary they were philosophers they were also into moral inquiry and they were economists historians so they did a lot about a lot and wrote a great deal about it and i think there's great lore and learning in their teachings 
you've had a very active involvement in business. And here we are talking about Hume and talking about Adam Smith, but also you've once said if you understand Shakespeare, you understand business. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely, so, I so think. So you bring in all of these ideas into business, Shakespeare, philosophy. What does all of this mean? Well, I try to yeah. bring some of the teachings uh, into it. I certainly try to. I think they're tremendous instruments. Classical literature has a great deal to, to tell us. Of course, uh, the art of war, of Lao Tzu, is, is oh, yeah. notoriously famous in, in, Tzu, in business yeah. schools. But if you read a play like Richard II of Shakespeare, for instance, I think there's a great deal about uh, gardening, for, uh, for instance, and the management of that garden and what it involves and why business leaders should be open to thought and to criticism and to trial and error and not simply hear what they would like to hear, which is what happens to Richard II, or look at themselves in the mirror and, and lament their woes or celebrate their triumphs. And that type of incentive or the very, very strong drive to try and see yourself as a, as a superhero as, or as a, a, some, someone who is beyond everybody else breeds hubris, breeds a, yeah. a misunderstanding of our relationships with other human beings and, and breeds the, the know-it-all syndrome that it happens to be common in politics and business, also in academia. We see it everywhere. And Shakespeare, I think, and in, in Richard II tried to dissuade us from that. Macbeth and, and, and Hamlet, I think, are also wonderful examples of what many— I was about to say many, Macbeth. Yes, but it was certainly, certainly Macbeth yeah. and, and that— How that, not to succeed in how, business. How not to succeed and, and the lust for yeah. power and, and just a, doing the wrong thing. Yeah. And at the end of Macbeth, there's a, there's a great saying— not the exact quote, but it's something like, life is a tale told by an idiot, yes. full of sound and fury signifying nothing. nothing. Yeah. So it drives you mad yeah. once you become a megalomania and once you become completely uh, egocentric. So there, there are, I think, very, very important teachings to be drawn, not just from Shakespeare, also from uh, other literary sources, uh, Cervantes, for instance, with sure. Don Quixote La Mancha yeah. and the play between realism and idealism. I, I, th I think it's a beautiful example yeah. and yeah. a great amount of learning that we could derive from that. In a way, your philosophy and your business converge with also your political views when you talk about transparency and communication. Mm -hmm. Say a little more about that. Well, I did a lot of economic journalism a few years ago. I was involved in television, radio, and writing, and I think it is extremely important to try and communicate what sometimes seem to be counterintuitive ideas. For instance, a proper explanation of how markets work, that it's not a system or an ideology, but rather a process of learning, of continual and dynamic learning, that they're not not these static entities that we may study in a textbook, but actual real-life economic activity. And some great, great economists in, in the 20th century, Gary Becker, for instance, had a, a book entitled The Economics of Life. There's another, Peter Betke, who's uh, actually a disciple of Eleanor Ostrom here yeah. at, uh, at Indiana, and he has one book entitled Living Economics. So try and see economics or political economy from a human point of view and therefore a multidisciplinary point of view. And I think the same would apply to business. If we're, we're able to bring that approach into business, learn how to fail. 
learn from your mistakes and see this as part of a method of trial and error. Scientists do this. Uh, it's called something uh, Karl Popper called falsifiability. What you're trying to do is not confirm the truth of a theory, but actually to continually test it and see if it can, you can prove it false. And the more it resists that falsehood, that attempt to prove it false, then you see that the more credible it becomes. That does involve a great deal of trial and error, which is not only necessary for business, but also, I think, for family relationships, for the relationships with your friends, and knowing when to say I'm sorry, and knowing when to recognize that, no, this time I did not succeed. Let me try again in a different manner. For those that uh, specifically study philosophy and get told, what are you going to do with that in your life? My answer would be, what can I not do yeah. with it? And your whole belief in transparency also goes down to the level of politics, of how people communicate well, openly. Uh, openly, uh, yes. And the aspect of transparency has become very important in Latin American societies and particularly Latin American politics, where a lot of what we hear from Latin America is uh, stories about these vicious circles of uh, corruption, impunity, crime, and violence. And I'm not saying it's the magic wand that is going to solve those problems, but a step in the right direction is to become more transparent in the way that you manage the federal budget and the way the budget process is approved and the way elections take place. In Mexico, just a generation or a couple of generations ago, we didn't know if our vote was valid or not. Now we do. We have these checks and balances and oversights, uh, international oversights even. It's very expensive. But it was required to bring credibility to the process that when I go vote, I know that that vote is going to count. And even then, you have accusations of electoral fraud. Transparency is going to be important also in business. If you cannot properly explain the numbers in a transparent and simple and simple sense, then something has got to be wrong. Our benchmark is if a 10-year-old cannot understand it, then you're the one that's wrong. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear you mention my colleague, Lynn Ostrom, Eleanor Ostrom, with whom I had the pleasure of working and doing many academic enterprises. Her work looks at decision-making in many cases away from the state mm -hmm. yes. and what drives people, at times using game theory, Indeed. to deal with common pool resources. Yes. And you think that's relevant from your reference? Oh, I think it's enormously relevant. In fact, uh, in my wonderful exchanges I've had here uh, during my stay in, in Bloomington and, and Indiana University, I've met a number of colleagues and associates and new friends that are associated with the uh, Ostrom Workshop, uh, the Ostrom Center here at uh, Indiana University. The message I wanted to convey is how relevant her thought, well, actually both their thoughts, uh, Vincent Ostrom was also a great contributor. Oh, yeah. And these uh, remarkable concepts because first of all, they're multidisciplinary. They're not just economics. It's oh, economics no. and politics and society and history. And it's also trial and error. It's looking small is beautiful, I like to say, yeah. when you characterize uh, Lynn Ostrom's uh, thought. Exactly. Small is beautiful, but also her thought was seemed to me very humble. And you don't preconceive a model and try and impose it, as let's say the IMF tries to do, or sometimes the World Bank, or some of these highbrow economists that think that they have a privileged access to the true model or the true way or the one true solution. It's rather, no, you go look at a specific case. Let's say it may involve a forest or it may involve a fishery or it may, yeah. it may involve some problem. Or you, a game you, park. Or, or a park. I worked with her on a project in which she was trying to show how people who lived on the periphery of the park uh -huh. 
should try and protect the natural resource by self-governance. Right, right. And sometimes that self-governance is, is the better governance instead of some highbrow bureaucrat coming from above exactly. and saying, oh, I'm going to show you how to, this should be regulated. I think her thought was, yes, allow me the freedom to govern my own community, but also the ability to learn from yeah. that. Uh, and it's through trial and error and through a learning process that, that we become aware of what the right rule, given this set of circumstance, is going to be. So that for Latin America, uh, I think for everywhere, but specifically for Latin America, is enormously relevant. There's a whole group of scholars in China who are followers of Lynn Ostrom, just to give you a little background on that. So, And, and by the way, I was always nervous mentioning the word state in the presence of Vincent and Eleanor. <laughs> Um, well, perhaps because of, of of so many that actually believe that they have the entire, the one grand solution to the one grand problem. Yeah. And that reductionism or that simplifying of matters is, is something that clearly they did not share. The Mexican Business Forum is really a remarkable organization, and it's been in existence for a while. And I know you bring together top political, top economic, top business leaders yes. into a dialogue. Why don't you tell us a little more about that? We've done a series of conferences and, and colloquia during the years in which it can be very relevant topics. For over 25 years, we've been trying to put together a first-class set of conferences that, uh, that indeed bring policymakers and policy analysts, influential business leaders and entrepreneurs to exchange ideas and to engage in a dialogue on, on whatever topic might be the relevant topic at the time. We've been doing this since 1992. It's been a long time, and uh, unfortunately, I never got to bring Eleanor Ostrup to yeah. Mexico, but some of her good friends, uh, such as uh, also Nobel laureate uh, James Buchanan, oh yeah, uh, we had the opportunity to host him twice in Mexico, and Vernon Smith, another good friend, who's now uh, well into his 90s, but still incredibly lucid and active uh, as ever. And recently, I've had the opportunity to preside a group called the Alamos Alliance. So oh, yeah. once a year, we meet in the town of beautiful colonial town of Alamos, uh, Sonora, where the famous uh, Mexican actress Maria Felix uh, yeah. was born. It has a strong and prominent expat community. A lot of Americans from California, from New Mexico, and from Arizona tend to go there to retire. A great spirit in, in, uh, in Alamos. And that's been able to attract some of the top economic and political thinkers of the world. We hold a conference there. It's not an easy place to get to, but we hold a conference there in, in uh, mid-February, usually over President's Day weekend. Uh, 40, 45 thought leaders throughout the world. We've had people coming in from Oman and New Zealand really? and uh, Chile and, and Argentina, a lot from the U.S., and from Canada, obviously from uh, Mexico as well. And I'm glad to say that it's uh, we, we just uh, concluded our 25th anniversary meeting. We hope for another 25 years, and I think we're on to something here because it's at the end of the day, it's dialogue, Patrick. And I think we, we think this issue of dialogue and of learning how to understand and talk to each other is essential if we want to understand, if we want to tackle and address today's pressing problems. And you clearly have had an impact on policy probably not immediately tangible, but without doubt, when people go away from your sessions. Oh, we always change. learn something. Definitely, yeah. we always, and that's, that's one of the reasons that uh, some, some of these uh, great thinkers then, then ask us to please bring them back, because uh, so, so we do think in that sense that ideas have consequences, but it's also learning experience in the sense that 
those people that are doing policy today, central bank governors or, or ministers of finance or ministers of economic development or ministers of health may say, wow, I need to think about this in, in, in this way or in that way or in a new way. And I'm going to rely on my new friends that I met at the Alamos Alliance. And sometimes policy decisions have come out of those, yeah. uh, of those meetings. You also worked for The Economist at some point. Continued to be associated with the Economist Intelligence Unit, uh, but with, uh, with the chapter of, Econ of the Economist Conferences, we held what was probably the most uh, important and influential economic roundtable. It, uh, it used to be called the Economist Government Roundtable. And basically, we would ask, this, this was on record, everybody from the president to the main cabinet posts and uh, the most important business leaders and, of course, media representatives and political and economic analysts. And uh, we would bring them together for an, an exchange, usually a day and a half exchange. And they were very hard to organize, I can tell you that. Afterwards, we always felt uh, we had been successful in at least laying the groundwork for future dialogue and for the next conference. And uh, yes, I did this for 13 years. Before we go on to discussing the United States and Mexico, we might have something beautiful. We might have a musical selection. Oh. And as I look across into the control booth and see Marta, I wonder if you wouldn't like to have one of your favorite pieces of music, an Elton John song called Your Song, right? Yes, which is our song. <laughs> yeah, It's our song, and it's a song that always brings uh, goosebumps uh, and uh, makes me think about my marriage with this wonderful woman. It's a little bit funny This feeling inside I'm not one of those who can easily hide I don't have much money But boy, if I did I'd buy a big house where We both could live If I was a sculptor <laughs> But then again, no Or a man Who makes potions in a Traveling show I know it's not much But it's the best I can do My gift is my song And this one's for you Tell everybody This is your song It may be quite simple But now that it's done I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind That I put down in the words How wonderful life is While you're in This is Profiles from WFIU, and I'm your host, Patrick O'Mara. And with us today is the distinguished guest from Mexico, Roberto Salinas. And I welcome you again. Thank you, Patrick. I hesitate to get to NAFTA. I hesitate to get to Donald Trump, but we need to. I have no problem with that. <laughs> I know. You know, there's a lot of discussion about NAFTA and the renewal of NAFTA. And of course, it is a troublesome concept. But what I'm seeing prior to even negotiation is 
already some of the dismembering of NAFTA. Yes. You know, everything from perhaps the tax reform in this country, which could indeed change the business climate in Mexico by attracting businesses back to the UN, right. to tariffs. Would you like to comment a little further on this? Well, the attack against NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is now just had its uh, 25th uh, birthday, it started in 1994. Clearly, after 25 years, you need to renegotiate an agreement of such comprehensive uh, magnitude. Issues like intellectual property rights protection or issues like e-commerce were not thought about or were not contemplated in sufficient detail in the agreement that was approved and implemented back in 1994. But it did lay the groundwork for, for the possibility of achieving regional integration between the three countries. And one thing that it has done, it has opened our eyes to see North America as by far the most competitive region on earth. It is because of the United States economy, clearly, but it is also because it is able to capture the different competitive advantage that each country, each zone, actually, I'd like to, I'd like to think more of it in terms of zones. In our age of technological disruption and innovation and dislocation, there are parties that have been affected. And perhaps one thing that we didn't think about clearly enough back 25 years ago was, do we have a reliable safety net in order to be able to retrain those that have been affected, those that have lost their jobs, that somehow have not been on the winning end of this magnificent expansion of trade, which it's increased more than tenfold over the past 25 years. And you would think about that because just free trade, what it means is basically eliminating taxes on trade. Yeah. Tariffs yeah. are nothing but taxes. And they're special taxes, so they're very discriminatory taxes. And taxes that end up hurting the consumer more than anyone else favoring a small select group. Right now, steel producers are, are ecstatic that they're able to raise their prices, but without going to a level in which they're going to lose the market. Benefiting the steel producer at the expense not of China or of Mexico or of Canada or of India or whatnot, it's at the expense of the, of the American uh, consumer. Unfortunately, NAFTA became a political time bomb, and Donald Trump was very clever in the way he turned this into a very bad word. Actually, I would argue that we need to change the entire concept altogether and perhaps talk more of a North American partnership yeah. and what that partnership entails. Entails regional rules of the game, rules of the game that we all agree on and that are going to apply in, in a general fashion and, and universally and not look at it in terms of, gee, am I going to be engaging and if I have a trade deficit, then it's bad. And if I have a trade surplus, then it's good. It's not about trade deficits or trade surpluses. It's about buying and selling more stuff, whether it comes from Mexico or Canada or the United States, or if we look at it regionally, if it comes from Sonora or it comes from Alabama or if it comes from California. In the United States, we don't have a problem about trade deficits, let's say between the state of Oregon and the state of Connecticut or between the state of Texas and the state of Florida. Why then should you worry that you're, you're losing jobs or you're, or you're getting economic displacements where you lose in one part, maybe gaining a lot more at sure. another part? Now, that does not take away from the fact that those that suffered dislocation and job loss 
We need to tend to that. And at least a reliable and credible safety net should perhaps be part be thought of as, as far as the next round of negotiations are concerned. There is a ripple effect, though, to these policies even before the renegotiation of NAFTA. What's going to happen in terms of price increases in this country? Even you raised once the notion of a candy wrapper. This ripple effect doesn't seem to have been understood fully. Also, what is the impact on the large auto industry section in Mexico, you know, if it's going to relocate to the United States. Are we seeing signs of this? It will be a bad effect on Mexico, and it could be a bad effect in this country. It's going to be a bad effect on all three countries because uh, especially automobile manufacturing has become so fully integrated. Uh, You know, intellectual design may take place in Windsor, Canada. Some design and some manufacturing may take place in Detroit, And then that goes down and assembly takes place in Mexico and the different components that come into the making or the assemblage of a car then is shipped back to the United States. But it has North American content. You cannot talk about whether these are Mexican cars versus U.S. cars versus Canadian cars. They're actually North American cars. And that supply chain is very tightly integrated. If you disrupt it on the end of Windsor, Canada, it's going to affect Hermosillo, Mexico. If you disrupt it in Detroit in the United States, it's also going to affect also the Canadian and the Mexican counterparts. Again, it's an integrated chain. And after 25 years of having commerce between the three countries, all these supply chains have developed and you have chains that go from Anchorage, Alaska, all the way to Tuxla Gutierrez in in Mexico. And that's not something that... that, And even beyond, Roberto. Oh, no, most definitely beyond. Well, actually, Mexico decided after many years of protectionism and cycles of poverty and inflation and devaluation, it decided to radically change its course and say, okay, our most important partners are at the north of the border. But that doesn't prevent me from opening my borders to the west and to the east and to the south. To the south. So it actually has something like 47 trade agreements, free trade agreements with all these countries and those of places like Chile, for instance, or Colombia. There's a minimal trade between those. It has a free trade agreement with the European Union. Sure, you're you're apprehensive to be able to compete in the global marketplace with some of these major players worldwide, but it has also forced us to be more competitive and to become more aware of our own learning process. And as far as that is concerned, the flip side of the story, the positive side of the story of Mexico is you have some magnificent success cases, not at the expense of the United States, but because of the fact that we trade with the United States and with the rest of the world. You've projected that by 2050, the Mexican economy could be one of the top five in the world. No, I have no no doubt about that. And we'll also be the United States' number one trading partner. Well, already it's number two trading partner. And many Americans don't realize that Mexico buys more stuff from the United States, more goods from the United States than Japan, France, England, and Spain combined. It's really a remarkable transformation. You think, well, what can Mexicans buy? Well, guess what? We're buying over $350 billion of goods. That's why, for instance, U.S. agricultural organizations, once they heard about the cancellation of NAFTA, they're the first ones that that said, no, 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 wait, wait, Uh, this is really going to hurt us because of all the enormous amount of trade on both sides. Mexico exports a great deal, such as avocado and, and, and mango, for instance, 
and a whole a whole sort of other stuff. But it also imports a great deal from the United States: yeah. chicken and meat, and yeah. poultry yeah. and meat, for instance. Mexico's the number one the number one customer of meat and U.S. poultry in the entire world. So that would be hurting the U.S. producer or supplier base. But also services, Patrick. I mentioned goods, oh, but yeah. also services, and right. we're now beginning to exchange services as well. Uh, hotel chains that have been developed in Mexico that are now op- beginning to open up in the United States, generate employment in the United States, pay taxes in, in, in the United States, add value added to the United States. That's beginning to happen. Some of the human capital, not just from Mexico, but from all of Latin America that has come into New York and that has come into Miami, that has come into Los Angeles, that has come into Chicago. These are communities that generate more value added to the entire United States than sometimes their own country. We have 16 million Mexicans that live in the United States that produce the same amount as 120 million Mexicans south of the border. So that tells you that's that's something very meaningful and, and why we should be thinking not about the American dream, but generalize it to the North American dream. Or to come back to the thought of the South and the West, is a regional common market excluding the United States even a possibility? It is a possibility, but it would be foolhardy to think that we can exclude the United States. Not a zero-sum game. I'm not going to gain because you lose or I'm not going to lose because you gain. I gain only if you gain. That's what David Hume and Adam Smith tried to explain about trade. And that's, if you think from a common sense point of view, when trade is free and voluntary, one party benefits only if the other can benefit as long as it's free and voluntary. And that also applies to, uh, to services, not to say of investment opportunities. Let me have the freedom to choose, Eleanor Ostrom, which exactly. certainly had agreed to that. Let me have the freedom to choose where I'm going to invest, whether it's in a manufacturing plant in Mexico, or aerospace development, software, or whether it's going to be in California, or whether it's going to be in Vancouver in Canada, or whether it's going to be anywhere else. And that, I think, is a principle that has to be protected and generalized in the new round of renegotiations of NAFTA. Let's talk about walls for a minute, or a wall. Yes. I've heard you on walls, and you've said all kinds of things. You said people can climb over walls, mm-hmm. they can go under walls, they can go around walls. Yes. For me, a wall is a rather static concept. It tends to center around the notion that all migration from Mexico to the United States is chronic. It could dry up as Mexico's economy improves. The assumption is that we've got to keep out people, but there might be a day when people might not want to come. Give us your wretched, give us your worst, let them be welcome here, or something to that effect. That's what the Statue of Liberty says. Immigration is obviously a very hot topic, and there are very bad immigrants and There are also very good immigrants. I can tell you, for instance, that one illegal immigrant from Mexico that fled 20 years ago or so was Carlos Payan, who eventually turned out to bring his grandmother's recipes from Michoacán into the United States. And he started as basically doing janitorial services and washing dishes. And then he was associate cook and then he was head cook. And now he has his own restaurant called Mexique in Chicago, and it's the only Mexican restaurant in the world that has a one Michelin star. Now, that's a success story that has brought value added to the United States, that has generated employment in the United States, pays taxes, and now has become part of the community and has legalized uh, himself in the United States. Dr. Q, who used to be a tomato picker and also crossed illegally, is now famously known as Dr. Q, 
operates cancerous brain tumors and saves lives and has become world famous. People travel from all over the world to come to Los Angeles so that his magic hands can do the trick, can do the magic and, and save their lives. And yes, there are also those that are involved in the drug trade and that have become very violent. But let us say, if we apply the logic of a wall to keep immigrants out because they're bad hombres or because they involve in crime or whatnot, recent statistic study by the Brookings Institution, which was replicated by the Cato Institute, and in other words, one uh, center-left and one perhaps center-right, or I, I don't like those terms, Patrick, but it doesn't matter the ideological. Different perspectives, but they came to the same conclusion. It's the same datum. It's not fake news. It's a real fact. Eight out of every 10 crimes committed in Texas are committed by Texan natives. Does this mean we should build a wall around Texas to keep those bad Texans within their own territory? Well, no. What we need is crime and punishment. We need rules of the game that are able to provide the proper disincentives. And that's another story altogether. But a wall, a wall by itself is not going to keep immigrants out. 80% of illegal immigrants coming from Mexico and Central America and South America into the United States, they fly in, they get a visa, and then they overstay their welcome. A wall is just a symbol. It's a powerful political symbol, but it's a symbol that I don't like you and I don't want you. And that's not an act of partnership, certainly not an act of friendship. The most interesting part of a wall, in my opinion, is the door. As long as those doors remain open and open to everybody under our rules of the game, like for instance, the bridge between San Diego and, and Tijuana today. You know, you're, you're previously vetted, you pay a small price, but you can cross over. That's the kind of building bridges spirit that I think we need to establish between our two countries and not one that engages in this incredibly costly exercise of building these walls and that is basically showing us this, I don't like you. That's the message that you're sending. And that can never be good with your neighbor. That can never, ever be good with your neighbor. We need to be able to talk to each other and get along. I want to move to Mexico and internal politics in a minute, but we might have another short break. And in honor of your son, Jose, I think you like Chopin. Yes, very much. And uh, this piece is uh, one that marvelous musician, my, my younger son, my boy, uh, that he played when he was 10 years old at a classical piano competition in Mexico. And it, it uh, almost brings tears to my eyes every, every time right. I hear it.
This is Profiles. I'm Patrick O'Mara, and our guest today is the prominent Mexican business leader, Roberto Salinas León. I want to talk about Mexico and the diversity of Mexico and the complexity of the components of the country, state-wise, municipality-wise, regional. Well, it's certainly not a homogenous entity. No. And you can't reduce it to a mariachis or a a few bad hombres. No, we have a very young population. So our average age is uh, 25 years of age. We also have a a very rich diversity of uh, cultures. Our ecology is is also one of the most diverse in in the entire world. So you have the northern states that almost behave in an autonomous fashion from the rest of Mexico and central Mexico. And and you have uses and customs uh, from over... uh, uh, 3,800 municipalities and 32 states. And then then you have, for instance, what many people know as the Yucatan Peninsula or the Riviera, the Mexican Riviera, which is just absolutely boomed in activity in the past few years and the amount of investment that, that, that goes into it and uh, that have become very thriving entities. You have others that with very rich cultural heritage despite their chronic problems with lack of education and, and with crime and with corruption. But uh, states like Michoacán or Oaxaca or Guerrero, uh, Acapulco, that has always been uh, considered a a treasure in the Pacific, has now become part of an unfortunate cycle of of criminal activity linked specifically to the drug trade. But that's another story. What we do have and what sometimes we fail to recognize in Mexico is that uh, it's a country full of absolutely wonderful resources. We have gold, we have silver, we have aluminum. Some of us claim to have, and I think I would argue that this is right, probably some of the best beaches in the world, uh, access to the Atlantic, access to the Pacific, a privileged geographical location worldwide, 3,000 kilometers with the richest economy in the nation, part of uh, North America. It has oil, it has natural gas, it has shale gas, and again, it has a young and vibrant population that is starving for education and that very much requires to be integrated into the global economy. So it's certainly not a one-time entity or, or a homogenous entity that can be reduced to a single formula or a single stereotype. You've called, though, for municipal reform. Yes. Why? Well, because lack of transparency and oversight at the state level and at the municipal level. There's been some at the federal level that has been successful, but a failure to oversee that has created the negative incentive for governors, uh, such as uh, Javier Duarte in Veracruz, to absolutely ransack the treasury. And uh, he was found guilty of stealing millions and millions and millions of dollars from the state treasury. That also happens in municipalities. Many municipal presidents that the funds that they get from the federal government, there's no oversight on, on that government. There's no transparency in the way that that money is spent. And they end up basically using it as a tool to enrich themselves during their tenure in office. Also the manipulation, and I think here once again, the thought of Eleanor Ostrom would have been extremely relevant. The failure to understand how rules and regulations at a local level apply. Commercial permits and development permits are issued at a local level. And that, I think, may be a mistake, especially a mistake if there's no federal oversight of the way this is being handled. 
Why? Because it becomes a rent-seeking activity or what economists call a rent-seeking activity. In other words, I'll give you the rule and I'll allow you to develop mm -hmm. as long as you pay me the corresponding yeah. bribe or you yeah. pay me the corresponding rent. Yeah. And so it becomes a horrendous circle of corruption and impunity. So yes, I think it's extremely important that oversight be applied. Otherwise, what we have, instead of diverse, rich, and prosperous uh, municipalities, we have 3,800 banana republics. Yeah. And also, not only on the municipal level, over-regulation. Well, over-regulation, an economist friend of mine, uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago, Edgar Mason used to say, over-regulation sometimes is deliberate because it's like putting a whole bunch of stones and potholes and rocks right in a road and you're driving on the road and every time you hit a pothole or hit a hit one of these obstacles all the change in your pocket falls <laughs> that's well that's the whole purpose of the, some of these rules is to extract rents yeah this is not not just the case in mexico but it's uh, it's chronic all throughout latin america no matter if you comply with all the rules and regulations you're going to hit a point in which if you don't pay the corresponding sum you're not going to be able to get ahead which creates the question whether sometimes engaging in corruption is a way of getting ahead yeah, in and fact, that's uh, extremely unfortunate to have to think about that it's not the perception of a sort of holier than thou notion of corruption recognizes that in mexico it might not be entirely dysfunctional Actually, I think you're understating it. Indeed, the problem is the holier-than-thou attitude, and we would want to eliminate corruption. But it's not because Mexicans are by nature corrupt. It's because the rules and incentives and the regulations are there, and people respond to incentives. A lot of these Mexicans, once they've crossed the border into the United States, for instance— well, let's talk about legal immigrants, they tend to behave in a very different fashion. Now they behave in a different fashion when you become immersed in trade that is governed by regional rules such as the North American Free Trade right. Agreement. Ah, it's a very different story there because the rules of the game there are far more transparent and far more credible. You raise the issue of drugs. There's a popular perception that in some parts of Mexico we are living through a Hobbesian state of nature. Yes. Do you agree? Yes, I do agree. There are some regions in Mexico that I wouldn't say Mexico is a failed state. No. It's definitely not. But some regions have become failed regions or failed zones or, or perhaps failed municipalities. The municipal police force is just simply not up to par. It's first class and first world mercenaries versus police that have been that have very little training and very little resources at their availability. Moreover, what the member of an organized crime unit like Los Zetas or Cartel de Juarez, Cartel de Sinaloa, and so on and so forth, what they do is they give you a choice. It's, you know, you can earn a gargantuan amount of money per year working for me, or I'm going to decapitate your entire family. Yeah. You choose. Well, what would be the choice, for goodness sakes? But uh, for the public, life becomes, to quote Hobbes, nasty, brutish. And very short. And very short. And stupid. <laughs> yeah. But how do you address these problems? Is it uh, the death penalty for uh, El Chapo and his, and his associates? Is it enforcement of the rule of law? I mean, we've tried a whole host of things, and we're still trying to learn. It's extremely violent, Patrick, because yeah. in that nasty, brutish, and short environment, this is where you see the messages. Decapitation is a, is a message. Violent assassination is a message. Yeah. Kidnapping. And sure, kidnapping is a message. If you have a neighbor that is undergoing this problem, you've got to think about, well, what's the cause? And I don't mean to offend anybody, but it's the levels of consumption of 
narcotics here in the United States is yeah. a big part of our problem. And that has led to a whole series of debates about drug decriminalization and what should we do about it and whether the whole set of drugs should be decriminalized and whatnot in the sense that let's better have a health problem than the type of violence that today has surrounded some of the regions in Mexico. You know, it's interesting. We, we've been looking at all of these different questions, but I also have to take into account that there's another side of Mexico and the informal economy, for example, forget the drug trade, people on the streets selling, buying, is a very vigorous part of the culture. It's a thermometer of the quality of your rules and regulations. Once again, it's a problem that, you know what, it's so difficult yeah. to engage in trade because you've got all these rules and regulations that I'm just going to bypass them. And so informality, I think, is, is, a, is a fascinating phenomenon in Mexico and in Latin America. I claim that Uber was discovered in Peru, for instance, and it was just word of mouth. So-and-so needs transportation to the airport. You know, spread the word, and then all of a sudden, here would come a van and take you to the airport and charge you yeah, a fixed fee. Yeah. And this was not regulated by the state oh. or by the local governor or by the local uh, municipality. No, it was simply regulated by a, a free transaction between individuals. There's nothing illicit or wrong or immoral about it's one fellow. Ta it's entrepreneurship. Yeah. Indeed. In Mexico City, we had a recent economist visit, a wonderful economist, also a friend of uh, Lynn Ostrom, uh, Deidre McCloskey, at a stoplight. She witnessed a fellow, a young man, 16, 17 years old, that was doing all kinds of magic tricks and dressed up as a clown. And she thought, well, do we have to pay him? Uh, no, well, but he's entertaining us. Yes, but it's voluntary. It's up to you to pay him. And she immediately uh, pulled down her window and gave him $10, which probably this yeah. fellow thought that was the, yeah. my, my pay of the day. Yeah. They'll sell you everything if, if it's... Um, the 14th of February, they'll sell you flowers. And if it's Halloween, they'll sell, they'll sell you masks, yeah. sometimes of uh, former presidents. <laughs> yeah. You know, Mexico is a country of enormous extremes. There's great wealth and there's also great poverty. But I want to come to a philosophical level with that. I've heard you talk about a variation on the theme of the guaranteed income. The universal income. The universal income. That's not really viable in your mind, or is it? No, I think it is viable. In Mexico? I think it would be something to consider, or some form of the universal basic income should be considered as part of a reliable safety net. I think about it in terms of I'd rather see the money in the hands of the mother that is trying to feed a family and that lives in moderate poverty or conditions of extreme poverty than in the hands of either local or federal bureaucrats that really don't know how to spend the money and don't really care about how it gets spent or care very little or may, may not have an incentive. The cost effectiveness of those resources is better in the hands of those that need it the most. It's not a free lunch. It's not a subsidy. It's a directed or a cash subsidy that is not intermediated by the state or the federal government. And so in that sense, I would defend it. Now, it's not a solution to poverty or to income inequality. The money could be squandered yes, by it, the individual. Yes, it could. Yes, it could. But I prefer to give the benefit of the doubt to the mother that has extremely scarce yeah. resources at her yeah. availability than to the highbrow bureaucrat that really doesn't have an incentive yeah. to spend it properly. That's quite challenging. It is challenging, but we think I have to think out of the box. Yeah. yeah. There's a presidential election coming up shortly. Yes. Got two interesting polar extremes almost as we look at the current president representing one order, Peña Nieto. And then we have in the wings, Lopez Obrador. Yes. 
Tell the Americans who are listening to this what to expect and what to look for and what are the consequences. In good part because of the nasty narrative on Mexico and the, the image that has been portrayed by the current Trump administration uh, that has partially empowered Lopez Obrador and has led to an awakening of the anti-American or anti-gringo uh, sentiment in Mexico, which we thought was fairly dormant because yeah. of this budding relationship between us. So Lopez Obrador right now is leading the polls. Uh, we're about to begin the actual campaign process. It, be, it kicks off on April the 2nd. I think it's Lopez Obrador's election to lose. He's tried twice before and three times may be a charm. I don't like the possibility of him rising to power, but I also have to think that Mexico is bigger than its president. It used to be that we had this pyramid structure in politics where the president was king, was, was the leviathan, that ruled everything. And what time is it? Whatever time you wish, Mr. President, used to be the remark. That's no longer the case in Mexico. We have to be faithful and optimistic that there would be checks and balances. What to expect? You can expect very interesting times south of the border. This has been a very interesting interview by someone who's a philosopher and a businessman. Roberto, thank you very much. And I think we might go out with another piece of music Another of your favorites from the Rolling Stones. Yes. I like this piece of music because it reminds me of my friends, and I think very dearly of my best and closest friends. And the title? You Can't Always Get What You Want. It's a wonderful title for all of us. Yes, indeed. This is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Patrick O'Mara, and our guest has been Dr. Roberto Salinas Leon. Roberto, thank you. Thank you very much, Patrick. A glass of wine in her hand I knew she was gonna meet her connection At her feet was a footloose man You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes you might find
Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.